0: Chapter 9 of Homecraft Rugs, Their Historic Background, Romance of Stitchery, and Method of Making by Lydia LeBear and Walker. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Joanne Turner. Part 3. Rugs with Superimposed Surfaces. Chapter 9. Tapestry Floor Coverings. Chapter 9 includes color plates 13 and 14, which may be viewed in the online version of this book. The highest type of decorative textile floor covering is found in the tapestry rug. In ancient times, finely drawn threads of pure gold and silver were interwoven with delicate strands of silk and wool, and jewels of enormous value were introduced. Nor did the grandeur confine itself to the rugs alone, for they were held in place by orange-shaped gold weights, studded with precious stones, placed sometimes at intervals of not over four feet. These ancient rug fasteners of five-pound gold nuggets bear little resemblance to modern ones of no intrinsic value, though the latter have the convenient advantage of being flat. Most of these tapestries that have withstood the ravages of time have had the precious metals drizzled out and the gems have been stolen or confiscated. Nevertheless, so priceless are they today that to tread upon them would be desecration. They are again put to their original purpose of wall hangings, as we call them, though they actually were tent hangings, by their once gay colors now mellowed by age, the drabness and severe plainness of the tent sides became a blaze of glory, and the stitchery pictures beautified the walls then as fine oil paintings now do. The transformation of tapestry tent hangings to textile floor coverings is ascribed to a picturesque occurrence. Tradition says that a tapestry was taken from a wall and spread before a king to glorify his pathway, protect his feet, and bespeak homage. When he had passed on his way, the textile was again hung in its accustomed place, to be more highly treasured even than before. This respect having once been paid, it could scarcely be disregarded again, and a precedent was established for this monarch and others with whom subjects wished to court favor. It was no such sumptuous carpet that was spread before Queen Elizabeth to protect her feet from the mud, but an act of equally chivalrous courtesy and homage was paid by Sir Walter Raleigh when he snatched the coat from his back and spread it in the pathway of his queen, lest her dainty shoes find contact with the muddy water. The contrast in these carpets, improvised for royalty, is not as immense as might first appear, for the coats of courtiers in the days of good queen Bess were lavishly embroidered in silks and gold threads, and ornamented with gold lace. It is known that, from time immemorial, rugs were associated with worship, and often used as decorations for altars. They continue to be so employed to this day in many countries, as instanced in the mecca rugs and other holy carpets. This raises a doubt about the romantic tale of the origin of carpets following the use of tapestries as floor coverings spread before kings, for it certainly seems equally probable that the first tapestry used as a carpet was laid before an altar and trod upon by priests and those known as holy men. Credence can be given either story with the surety that one or the other of them is true. Romance is the very warp and weft of tapestry floor coverings. There is a consensus of opinion, based on archaeological research and textile investigation, that the first rugs were without pile, smooth-faced as they are termed. This is proof, apart from tradition, that tapestry was the textile. This is further substantiated by the fact that the only two types of smooth-faced oriental rugs are in tapestry weave, namely gilems and shemakas. The former is reputed to be the first and earliest type of oriental rug. In what era in the dawn of civilization tapestries as we know them were first fabricated is not known, but that they came from the Far East is recognized as certain. The Israelites are said to have instructed the Egyptians in tapestry weaving. Pieces of tapestry from Egyptian tombs of great antiquity are to be seen in the Museum of Cairo. Centuries later, the work found its way to France, perhaps in 726 AD. It kept its prestige as a religious and royal textile inviolate. Up to the middle of the 13th century, the tapissiers stated that their work is for the service only of churches or great men like kings or nobles. Livre des métiers. When the work entered England as a craft in 1509, it was still kept exclusive. Cost would have been a barrier even if the weavers did lift their pronouncement, as princely prices prevailed. It is interesting to note that the Elbisson carpets, so justly famous, are tapestry textiles of smooth face. Whether made in Europe or America, these carpets are used today for wall hangings in preference to floor coverings. Their manufacture, with tiny bobbins instead of threaded needles applied from the back, is in accord with time-honored methods. Ancient tapestries, some of which, as we have seen, were used as rugs, were woven on a loom of some sort, and the stitches were taken around the warp threads in such a way that they formed an interlacing weft, there being none other. Later on, tiny hand bobbins were employed, each being wound with some colored yarn required in the pattern the thread being cut and the end left hanging after the stitches were taken. As the ends came on the wrong side of the work and were proof against unraveling, they were left shaggy. The reverse side of a needlepoint tapestry rug presents much the same appearance, as it too has short ends hanging. From this brief account of the stitchery, it will be seen that it is a sort of embroidery done on the warp. It is not duplicated by cross-stitch, with which, in this age, tapestry is often confused, or cross-stitch is inherently an embroidery on a previously woven textile, while tapestry is inherently a textile embroidered in the weaving. Genuine tapestry can never be embroidery only. Hence the name needlepoint tapestry, canvas tapestry, and tapestry embroidery are significant, always differentiating the embroidery from the genuine article. This does not mean that the latter, by whichever name it is called, is not exquisite, as indeed it may be, but that it is always a replica. There are certain similarities, however, between genuine tapestry work and needlepoint tapestry embroidery on canvas, and when these are understood, a reason is recognized for the appellation tapestry rugs to canvas-worked carpets. Needlepoint canvas was first made to reproduce a textile from which certain warp and weft threads had been drawn out. Embroidery on such a home-prepared fabric is common in all countries abroad. When the stitches are taken on the warp threads only, either in loom or hand-drawn foundations, The work corresponds to genuine tapestry, and the name tapestry stitch is deserved. Homecraft rugs, therefore, can rightfully claim to be tapestry floor coverings when they are embroidered on warp threads, whether held together by weft, afterward inserted, or previously woven into the textile. The exigencies of canvas stitchery are such, however, that in smooth-faced surfaces, such as tapestry embroidery, the medium naturally crosses the weft also, strengthening, though not actually making it. As the weft can neither be dispensed with nor combed up, it would be visible unless worked over, so this becomes an indispensable element in the embroidery. All the more, since the work must be done on canvas with a large mesh and coarse medium to ensure sufficient weight and durability to the rug. The fact that cross-stitch is not technically included under genuine tapestry, and is granted its place by custom and courtesy in canvas-work tapestry, supplies sufficient reason for omitting it from this chapter. Of so great importance, however, is the stitch in rug craft, and so popular, that an entire chapter is devoted to this Phrygian work and its ancient historical background. Needlepoint tapestry rugs in Point were not unknown to the colonial settlers, though seldom made. Growpoint is merely an enlarged form of pettipoint, a stitch-in-canvas tapestry that is a direct outgrowth of genuine tapestry weaving. It becomes enlarged either because the canvas is coarse or the stitches are taken over more threads, it is always worked primarily on warp threads. It may be noted in passing that the name TENT STITCH comes from the frame used to hold the textile foundation. This frame was called a tenture or TENTER, from the Latin TENDO, to stretch. The word TENTER is applied today to a machine for the stretching of loom-woven cloth, while this is not likely to be familiar except to textile experts, the term on tenter hooks is well known. Embroidery was originally held in its position in its frame by hooks, instead of between two closely fitted rings, as found in modern tentures or embroidery frames. With the stiffened canvas now generally used in tapestry and other canvaswork rug craft, no frames are needed. The textile has sufficient body to hold its own. This is an item in favor of canvas rug making. The sole equipment consists of a blunt needle, large enough to take the yarn. The embroidery is simplicity itself, and since all the materials are easy to get, there is every reason for the vogue of tapestry rugs in America. In England, there is a distinct renaissance of embroidered grow point carpets, Ladies of title and rank are gladly supplying designs from their treasured floor coverings in this identical stitch. Some of these needlework carpets of English embroidery in fine stitchery date back to 1690. No less a personage than Lady Walpole embroidered such a carpet. From the earliest date of these embroidered carpets, the work was in the hands of persons of high rank, where it seems to have flourished mildly. The people of Vienna presented Lord Westmoreland, the ambassador from England, with a needlework carpet of large size as an especial tribute of appreciation. This was about 1855. Lady Suffield is also known to have made an embroidered rug. It is spoken of as a survival of carpet work once popular. All of these carpets are needlepoint on canvas. The one recently copied is distinctive. It has a design of flowers in an urn, four on each side in panels, while in the center are four panels with diminutive baskets of flowers. The border consists of flowers and leaves coming from a stem that undulates in scroll fashion about the carpet. It is embroidered in strips the width of the canvas and then the breaths are seamed together. Many early American needlepoint carpets were similarly seamed to give sizes beyond the possibility of a width of woven foundation. It is a method employed in all loom-made rugs, not constructed on extra-wide looms, for it is only the latter that can supply seamless rugs. The vogue for canvas needlepoint rugs has become so definite in America within the past few years that extra-large mesh canvas is now brought out to facilitate quick work. The kind with but four holes to an inch is one such, and on it, rugs can be made with the speed graphically described by the phrase, as quick as chain lightning. The use of the word chain recalls one of the stitches, which has the same name, and by which the oriental smooth-face shmaka rugs can be reproduced. The stitch known by the name of the rug is recommended for canvas that is not so coarse, and it will be given first attention. It may be mentioned that needlepoint rug craft of the counted thread canvas embroidery type can be done on burlap, as it was in olden times, But the extra trouble involved is now unnecessary and even futile, for woven mesh canvas is a superior foundation. The Shimaka stitch of canvas tapestry rug craft is a variation of tent stitch, so perfect that it rightfully comes by the oriental appellation. The genuine rug stitch directions can be followed to the letter in needlepoint tapestry rug making. Griffin Lewis describes the stitch in The Practical Book of Oriental Rugs as follows, The different colored woof threads are twisted over and under the warp threads by means of a needle in such a way that each stitch is made diagonally, taking in two of the warp threads and leaving every alternate row of stitches facing the opposite direction after the herringbone pattern. On the underside, the shaggy ends of the colored woof threads are left loose, unquote. It may be added that the edges are usually overcast and the ends fringed. The designs are chiefly those of the Caucasian group known as Dagestan and Shervan. A rug maker can follow these directions with a needle threaded with tapestry yarn, different tones being requisitioned as the design requires. The needle is brought up through a hole in the canvas and put down in the second hole above, and the first at right or left according to the direction of the line being worked. This brings the yarn diagonally over two warp strands, as in the genuine weaving. The yarn ends are left loose on the underside in the needlepoint rug, as in the oriental rug, but they should be worked over for a few stitches when starting a stitch or run under a few stitches when finishing a needle fold. The second Schmacka needlepoint stitch is otherwise known as chain stitch, as mentioned. It is worked between rows of warp threads precisely as regulation chain stitch done over one or two rows of weft. Reinsert the needle in a hole in the canvas and bring it up two holes lower down holding the yarn under the needle on the surface of the foundation while the yarn is drawn snugly. The work must progress in the same direction, beginning always at the same end of the rug, for in one stitch the herringbone effect is produced. It will be narrower than in the schmaka stitch, knitting stitch first described. Each row of chain schmacka stitch must be completed without interruption for each stitch is linked to the one preceding and the one succeeding it. There can be no skipping about, as is possible in the first type of shamaka stitch, where isolated stitches may be set to indicate a pattern or conveniently dispose of a needleful of colored yarn. Each color in chain shamaka stitch must be introduced as called for in the line being worked, and in its prescribed place following the pattern. The medium must be coarse enough to conceal warp threads. The rug illustrated is typical of Schmacker embroidery of the first type. By comparing it with a genuine Schmacker rug, its close duplication in stitchery is immediately apparent, even to the number of stitches in the linear inch. See Plate 13. The design has the caucasian feeling and is wrought in tapestry yarn having the oriental colorings. The galley and water motifs are suggested in the border. While the field has the broad geometric pattern style so often found in caucasian rugs, the plentiful use of black will be noticed. In genuine chimangas, it is customary to have outlines done in black. Again, correct developments are found in the oriental red of the field and in the blue, the orange, and the light natural wool color. This rug, embroidered by the writer, has been in use for a number of years as a wall hanging and a table carpet. One of like size in exactly the same stitchery has been in use as a floor rug for 12 years. It is still in good condition and likely to give much longer service, it took just two weeks to design, embroider, and make the fringe for this 20 by 32 inch rug, and to complete it with lining and interlining. Rugs of this type are choice and also rare. They can be used appropriately with the finest oriental carpets. As they so closely resemble genuine chamacas, It is interesting to note what Mary Churchill Ripley says about these eastern carpets in her Oriental rug book. needlework upon a woven web makes beautiful many of the fabrics of the Orient, notably Baghdad stripes, camel's hair shawls, and the sumac rugs, another spelling of shmaka, from the backs of which hang the long ends of colored wools used in the weaving and decoration. Unquote. And also, quote, much greater skill is required to make these delicate tissues of intricate pattern than is needed in the tying in of knots in a pile carpet. Unquote. Fortunately for homecraft rug makers, replica schmackas can be made easily and quickly, as has been indicated. When copying patterns for schmacka rugs, It is wise to take them direct from some genuine rug of this kind, for then the stitch requires no adaptation. Do not attempt to make ends duplicate side borders. The stitch is so at variance in its length and width that this presents difficulties. It will be noticed in genuine Shimaka rugs that ends and sides are not alike. If a cross-stitch design or a pattern from a knot-tied oriental rug is adapted to a schmacka, consider each point where the stitches in the elongated double stitch join as the beginning of one stitch. It will be found that the distance from tips at the ends of a herringbone stitch to this point will be equal to a square. This simplifies adapting patterns. There are several canvas stitches that can be used to advantage in fashioning rugs of the tapestry order. As we have seen, some of them take on names of rugs. Another, besides those given, is known as the Smyrna cross stitch or double cross stitch and is mentioned here in connection with Oriental nomenclature rather than stitchery. It is made by working a straight cross through the holes left vacant after working a regulation cross stitch, three holes square, that is, over two rows of warp and two of weft. This heavily padded stitch covers the canvas quickly and without requiring the extra amount of yarn that would at first glance seem needed. The greater space occupied by a single stitch substantially offsets such a disadvantage. Tapestry rugs of distinction are made from the stitch interchangeably called gobelin and tapestry stitch. For rug craft, the wide gobelin stitch should be used. It is a vertical stitch covering two, three, or more threads instead of only one, as in regulation tapestry or gobelin stitch. The length of the stitch suitable for making rugs depends upon the size of the canvas employed. It should be long enough for all rows of stitches to be clearly defined, but not so long that they prevent a firm, substantial texture. Three quarters of an inch is advised. This stitch is a favorite in raffia embroidery on canvas imported from Italy in the shape of bags, cases, and purses. Instead of this raffia medium, rug yarns should be used, or strands cut from one-quarter to one-half inch wide, from silk or fine Lyle stockings, or closely woven jersey cloth. This medium may be used in other tapestry rugs when the foundation is sufficiently coarse. The strips may be cut either on the straight or bias. If the latter, use the one-half inch width. Rugs in any of these mediums, other than yarn, immediately slip from the needlepoint tapestry group into the group of rag rugs. The embroidery is done in parallel rows of straight stitches of equal length, so spaced across the rug that they form crosswise rows of sharply defined indentations. This is the opposite structure of Japanese straw mattings. Colors can be introduced at will in any length of stitches that does not infringe upon the indented, linear construction. Or they can be worked regardless of it, though the background must never depart from the precision of parallel stitchery which is germane to the Goblin rug work. Each stitch is taken its full length on the right and wrong side of the rug, the under part thus forming a padding for the upper, And supplying durability to the rug surface. The top of the stitch is straight, which is exactly the reverse of Shimaka rug stitch. Each row of stitches begins in the top holes of the preceding row of stitches, thus forming an uninterrupted rug surface completely concealing the foundation. The extreme simplicity of the long stitch tempts the rug maker to fashion one of these unique floor coverings, especially as it is apparent that one can be made in a short time. Extra beauty is gained by heavier padding of stitches. An easy way to do this is to work over a strand of wool, flannel, domit flannel, or outing flannel. Strips may be torn. They should be a trifle narrower than the length of the embroidery stitch. Braid or tape may be used, if preferred, or any soft strands of lightly twisted cotton cord or yarn. It is not the Gobelin stitch just described that alone is done quickly. All needlepoint tapestry rugs can be constructed with speed and ease. There is, moreover, a fascination about the embroidery that has kept it always popular, so choice is the work that it is still sometimes referred to as court or royal embroidery. It was a work of court ladies, and because of its close association with the nobility at the time when every lady of rank and leisure plied her embroidery needle skillfully in gay or troublous days, there is an atmosphere of romance about it. The rug maker who includes a needlepoint tapestry rug among her floor coverings, has won in a craft of ancient prestige, of regal ancestry, and of beauty that belongs to every age. End of chapter 9